Well, if you are new or if you um, took a few weeks off, we have been going through the Gospel of Luke. Um, Tonight we'll be in Luke chapter 23 if you want to turn there. To kind of recap, we've been going through Luke looking at the life, the ministry, the work of Jesus, the man who is God. We've been looking at him as angels declared his coming and his birth. We saw that when Jesus got baptized, God the Father opened up the heavens and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, and that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. We saw that Jesus was then immediately moved to the desert where he was tempted by Satan, and Satan came at him with every possible way trying to get Jesus to obey him and disobey God, and Jesus withstood all temptations. He withstood the evil one. We saw Jesus then go and... um, preach and teach in a way that encouraged people and got people excited about God and talking about this coming kingdom where everything's going to be turned on his head and that he's going to rule and reign this kingdom forever. We've seen him go and heal people who were broken. He, he restored sight. He restored people's ability to walk and to talk. We saw him raise people from the dead. We saw him do miracles where he fed people Thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. We see Jesus do miraculous things that only he can do. And all the while, this group has been growing with him who are excited about the kingdom. And they're motivated about the kingdom. And they love this guy, Jesus, that they're following. Seeing him do miraculous things that only God could do. And these people, they're getting bold and they're getting excited and they're thinking, we're going to Jerusalem where our king is going to take the throne and he's going to rule and reign. Jesus all the while going, I'm going to be rejected in Jerusalem. Where I'm going, some things aren't going to look the way that you're going to like and they don't understand. And what we saw last week is one of Jesus's closest friends betrays him, sells him out for some cash. And then all of Jesus's other close friends who said, I'll, I'll die for you, God. I'll, I will never leave you. They abandon him and leave him on his own. And what we're going to see tonight is the continuing of that story where Jesus will be beaten. He will be mocked. He'll be slandered. He'll be put on a trial for crimes he didn't commit. And he will be ultimately murdered on the cross as he's crucified. And for all those people who've been following Jesus, all those people who have been walking with him and seeing all the things that happened, this day feels like the worst day ever. This is broken promises. This is all their hope is dashed against the rocks. This is their king that they were excited about, Messiah, the Christ. They're going to watch him die. This feels like the worst day ever. But something amazing happens Because we know the early church did not look at this day this way. In fact, when they talk about salvation and freedom in Christ, they don't mention the things that I would want to mention, maybe like the resurrection, but they focus on the cross. I think we see something amazing here, and I'm excited to dive into it with you guys. So Luke chapter 23, we're going to start by reading the last paragraph of Luke chapter 22. Mark left it out last week because it leads in so well to our discussion tonight. So Luke 22, verse 66 to start. When day came, so he's been beaten all night is the context. The paragraph right before that, they're taking turns punching him and saying, prophecy, who hit you? When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, 
and they led him away to their council. So when you see elder, chief priests, and scribes, this is the crew that from early on, there's been building tension with Jesus. There's been this animosity going throughout all of Luke of this crew who has been trying to establish, okay, who really interprets God's will? Who really has the authority to exercise God's will? Who's got the authority of God and who's going to lead God's people? This crew says it should be us. We're the religious leaders. This is how we do religion. And Jesus goes, I'm not interested in religion. I'm not interested in your rules. Jesus goes, there's a kingdom coming and your rules don't fit in with these rules. And so going throughout Luke, the animosity between this crew has grown. They've been watching Jesus, trying to catch him, slipping up his words, trying to find anything they can to accuse him. And then finally they say, we're going to get rid of this guy. We're going to put him to death. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, and I have that underlined in my Bible, but from now on, something happens right here. From right here on, everything is changed. Everything is going to be different. Nothing will be the same again. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. The last time Jesus was talking about the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, he says, you're doing stuff by the power of darkness. Jesus says, from now on, I'm doing stuff by the power, the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am, which I think is pretty clever. Jesus takes their accusation and turns it around on them like it's a admission, a confession of who he is. And they say, then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Didn't Jesus just say, if I told you, you wouldn't believe? It's interesting. What's funny, the tragic irony in all of this is the very people who are trying to stop Jesus and stop his plan are actually by doing so furthering God's plan forward. Isn't that interesting? They're going, we're going to stop this guy. Actually, it's exactly what God wants. And it's funny because I think we can get frustrated with rulers and people who are in charge going, well, that's not what God wants. And like Matt says, he uses governments like Legos. God is in heaven and he does what he wants. So now Luke 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So in Rome, they believed Caesar was put in power by a deity. So it's not only a governmental rule, it's also a religious authority that reigns over the people. So this is like two strikes against someone. Rome really did not do well with uprisings. In fact, they squashed those immediately and they squashed them hard. They came on down on them hard. So when they come to Pilate and they go, this guy says he's not only a king, but that he's Christ, that's two strikes. This should, they're thinking Pilate's going to shut this guy down. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. This isn't Pilate looking at Jesus going, no, man, this guy's innocent. 
this is a good guy. No, this is the guy who's been going talking about the kingdom of God. This is Pilate instead going, I don't see a threat here. I'm not looking at a kingly person. I'm looking at a guy who just got beat up all night. I don't see any threat here, anything that Caesar should be worried about. This is Passover. Can we all chill? I think that's what Pilate's saying here. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Who really stirs up the people? Who gets a mob about them? Not Jesus. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. So it's Passover. Everyone from everywhere is in Jerusalem at this time. And Herod is the dude. He's the reigning official over Galilee. When Pilate hears, you're a Galilean, let's make this Herod's problem. And he sends him off to Herod. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. There should be a little bit of tension here too because the last time we're mentioned that Herod is mentioned, he's looking for Jesus to kill Jesus. And his people, Jesus' people go, you got to get out of here. Herod's coming. He's trying to kill you. And we know Herod would probably follow through because he had just succeeded in beheading Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. So he questioned him at some length But he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So Herod dresses Jesus up as a caricature of a king and then sends him back across town. And the the way that the narrative is written out for us is it's instant. He's before Pilate, and he's before Herod, and now he's before Pilate again. Jesus is paraded all across town. Tons of people are in Jerusalem at this time for Passover. And he's being openly mocked and shamed and ridiculed and made fun of for all of these people to see. It's completely humiliating. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate's like, look, can we just beat this guy up a little bit and set him free? Like, can we just be done with this? We all got stuff we want to do. This is Passover. It's a big event. Let's, I just want you guys to calm down. I don't need any trouble. We'll beat him up a little and we'll set him free. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He gave in to the loud voices of the mob rather than what is just, rather than what was right. 
He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So right here, it gets decided that Jesus will be crucified. And for you and I, that doesn't really mean a lot because we're pretty separated from what crucifixion is. We're, I mean, unless you've been in church culture for a really long time, we don't have a lot of context for that. For Jesus and everyone present, they knew exactly what that was. So crucifixion is something that was invented by the Persians in 400 BC, and it was just a simple stake in the ground they'd impale their enemies into. And the Romans perfected it into this ultimate way to humiliate and shame and get rid of opposition, get rid of people who might want to overtake the government of Rome. What they did is they would put the stake in the ground, but they would make the the person that they had condemned carry the crossbeam to the place where they were going to be crucified. And then they would nail their hands into the crossbeam, attach it, nail their feet into the um, stake that's in the ground. And the, the awful thing with crucifixion is the thing that kills you, all of your bodily organs are still intact. You're still healthy as a person. What kills you is when your body succumbs to shock or asphyxiation, which means that you can't breathe anymore. Because what would happen is they would hang there until their lungs would kind of give out. And then what would have to happen is they would pull up on those stakes that are in those hands and in their feet to get a breath and then fall back down. And so people would often pull up on themselves and then try to shove themselves down, trying to break something or trying to harm their lungs so that they would die more quickly. So the Romans developed a kind of seat that they would put on the cross to make sure that it was the longest, most horrible, painful death possible. In fact, we have a word that came about because of the pain that's observed on crucifixion. It's excruciating. That word came about because of the cross. And it was very frequent that people would see others on crosses. And pictures that we have of the cross is like it's way up like 30 feet in the sky or whatever. But in reality, when Rome would put the cross up, they wanted you at eye level. Because they wanted people to come and be able to spit in your face. The whole procession that led with the convicted leading to the cross would be this entertainment for everyone in town. They'd come and they'd rile on the sides and shout and mock and be in their face. And then once they were up on the cross, they'd often be stripped naked and they're just shouting at you, spitting in your face. People would often take bets for how long it would take for them to die. It was a whole awful thing. And Rome made it that way specifically so that they'd say, you do not follow this person. This person is someone you don't want to be like. Look at them. They are not a hero. They're not someone you should aspire to be. They are losers. That's what they would do with the cross. And that's what Jesus is being condemned to right here, is it's not some pretty picture. It's actually horrible and it's graphic. And what I think we see here is in Luke chapter four, you see Jesus is tempted by Satan after he's hungry and after he's tired. It was 40 days. I think this is Satan's last chance to get Jesus to cave. Either you're gonna be obedient to the father or he's gonna be disobedient to the father. And he's been up all night being beaten up. And in fact, he's so badly beaten up that Isaiah tells us that you couldn't even recognize him anymore. That he's so badly marred, you wouldn't be able to see what he looks like. And now he, He's going to be heading to the cross. And I think Satan is trying to make everything as shameful, as horrible, as terrible as he can because Satan's got the, his, his best lie, the best trick in the book. It's the first one. It's God is holding out on you. Look at how bad this is. 
you should give up. Look at these people. They hate you. They don't want you to save them. They don't, they don't desire you. They should die. They should be condemned. They should experience God's wrath. Look at them. But Jesus, like he prayed the night before, it's not my will, but God's will be done. And so Barabbas is the first man that Jesus, his, he gets set free because Jesus takes his place on the cross. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. This guy, Simon of Cyrene, he's from North Africa. We get some information from him from the other gospels. And it's kind of what happens to him. If it happened to me, I'd be like, gosh, this is a bummer. You know, he's just in, he's in town. It's Passover. He's walking by. He sees some commotion. So he walks over there. And in the gospel of John, we're told that Jesus carries his own cross. And so the way that a lot of scholars reconcile these is they say Jesus carried his own cross, but after being beaten and fatigued and he's exhausted, he falls. And then the Roman soldiers look around, they see Simon, they say, Simon, or they say, you random person, come pick up the cross. And so, okay, he goes and he, he picks up the cross beam. But we know that this wasn't just a, okay, I'm going to do this and he ditches it. Something happens with Simon in following Jesus where he's deeply moved and he's forever changed because his two sons end up being huge in the church in the book of Acts. His, one of his sons' name is Rufus, which I don't know, he must not have been saved when he named his son Rufus because I don't know why you do that. But something happens here where he's following after Jesus. He sees what happens and he's forever changed. And he ends up being for us the perfect picture of the Christian life, following after Jesus with the crossbeam on his back. And therefore, or, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wounds that, wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This should be shocking. You have Jesus beaten, marred, so badly bruised, so badly cut up that you can't even recognize him anymore, walking to be crucified. There's a whole procession. He sees people weeping for him and he goes, oh, don't weep for me. You should be weeping for yourselves. That should make everyone go, what? And it reminds me earlier when Jesus, he sees Jerusalem and he starts crying for the city. He goes, if only you had known the things that meant for peace. If only you had known and embraced me as your king. Because bad stuff is going to happen. And if right now the man who brings peace, the, the, the living water himself is here, what's going to happen when I'm gone? And Jerusalem is a, a tinderbox for imagery. Jesus is talking about Hosea 10.8. He quotes that there. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull... There they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Guarantee the soldiers, after hundreds of crucifixions, never heard that. 
I've heard a lot of things. They're crucifying people. Never heard that. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There is also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are also under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What I notice here is there's three people that talk to Jesus and they get no response. And I've grown up in the church. I've, I heard all the stories about Jesus growing up and I know that he can heal people. I know that he can save. I know he can do miraculous things. I've seen in the Old Testament that God stops the sun in his place to get his will done, that, that there's all of creation that bends to God's will. And I know that I have prayed these same prayers to Jesus where I've looked at him and I said, he saved others. I know you can heal. God, I, I know you can do this. Why won't you? God, you can do this. I know it's within your power. I know that you've done it in the past. I've, in fact, I've seen you do it. I've taught you do it. I've, I've seen all the movies. I know what's in your power. And I know that I've been told that you hear me and that you're here with me right now. Why can't you heal? God, why didn't you take away that disease? God, why didn't you fix that? I know I've prayed that prayer. Then the next one, if you are the king of the Jews, God, if you're really king, Jesus, if you really have authority, Jesus, if you're really good, Jesus, if you're really merciful, couldn't you have changed that circumstance? Couldn't you have fixed that? God, if you're really powerful, why did that happen? I don't get that. And the last one, I know I've prayed, which is, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. God, don't you see that I'm in pain? Don't you see how miserable I am? Can't you see how bad this is? Can't you see how lonely I am? Don't you see the, my circumstances? Why can't you pull me out of this? Don't you see how bad this is? The criminals look at Jesus going, this is bad, save us. And Jesus says, no. And I think when we pray those prayers, I think what we accidentally do is we look at God and we go, I know better than you. I know what's right. Because if you knew what was right, if you knew what I know, you would get us down. But what Jesus knows is this has to happen. If I come down, if I answer your prayers, if I get off of this cross, you have no hope. You have no hope. Everything is lost. You will never be reconciled with God. You will never know peace. You will always be striving. You will always be bound by a law that you can never fulfill. And so the people stand before the God and go, we, I know you can save others. And you say, yeah. Then come down. No. Well, but if you're king and if you're good and if, God, if you're really powerful, yeah. Then come down. No. Well, then pull me out of this circumstance because I know you're able to. Yeah. Will you get us down? No. But here's what I see Jesus immediately answers yes to. Someone who looks at him and goes, I'm condemned and I've trespassed 
and I'm in a bad spot, but Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus goes, yeah. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So Jewish time starts when the sun comes up. For us, it starts in the middle of the dead of night. For them, it starts when the sun comes up. So for them saying that it was the sixth hour, that's noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. I've only seen 27 years worth of noons, but it's never been dark at noon. This is Passover. And so some people go, oh, it was a solar eclipse. Well, here's the thing with Passover. Passover happens when the sun is here, the earth is here, and the moon is here because the sun reflects off the moon and there's a full moon shining on the earth. So for anyone to say that, oh, it was just a solar eclipse, which lasts max of 20 minutes, that's not the case. It's three hours of total darkness covers the earth. What I believe that we see is in Luke, you see there's a star that heralds Jesus's birth. A special star shows up and goes, this is where the king is being born. And then later Jesus says to his disciples, if you are silent about me, the very rocks would cry out that I am king. And right here we see that when the son of God dies, all of creation feels it. And the sun itself turns off for three hours. All of creation shudders. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. They pass on very quickly from that. But in Hebrews, what we know about this is there was a temple and there was a spot called the Holy of Holies and the curtain divided people from that and only the high priest was allowed to go in there. And people, the nation would come to the high priest and say, intercede for us, go for us before God and plead on our behalf and get for us forgiveness. Make us reconciled before God. And what happens here is that curtain is torn, that God is no longer bound in the Holy of Holies, that we don't meet with him there. Instead, we have a good high priest. We have Jesus who, when we go to him and go, God, I failed, the Bible calls him a man of sorrows, that he knows every single trial and tribulation and sorrow that you and I could ever go through. He knows everything that we've ever been, that we could be tempted by because he was tempted by Satan in all those same ways, except he overcame. And so when we come to him and go, God, I messed up, he doesn't go, you bonehead. Instead he goes, I get it, but I've already paid for it. I know there's, a, there's this show that my wife and I watch where this girl, she, she commits a sin and then she goes in her room every night and she starts whipping herself. God doesn't demand that of you and I. Jesus was already whipped. He already took that from you and I. When you and I sin, we get to go before Jesus. We get to go, God, I messed up. I'm sorry. And Jesus just says, you're forgiven. Jesus goes to Father, goes to the Father on our behalf and says, Father, forgive them. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus, from the first time he's tempted by Satan, through all of the struggle and the temptation, and you see right here when the women are, are talking to him, he's quoting Hosea ten eighteen, And this very last thing that he says, Father, into your hands I commit, commit my spirit. That's Psalm 31, 5. Jesus 
consistently in hard times had scripture on his tongue, had scripture on his mind. We can never be people who undervalue the importance of scripture. Later, Paul will talk about scripture and he'll say, it's your sword. That the enemy's gonna come at you and the enemy's gonna come and try anything he can to get you to say, God has failed me. God has not come through for me. He's gonna get you to try to pray these prayers that is so easy to pray and go, look at God doesn't actually care about you. But if we're not people who are steeped in prayer, we'll fall for those things. And we see that in Jesus, that Jesus was so into scripture. He's so meditated on scripture that in every hard place that he was in, he would always have scripture to quote and to fall back on and go, no, God is faithful. God is worthy to be trusted in. God has a plan. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandments. For everyone who was there, for the people who watched, for the centurion who was standing there, who said, surely this man was innocent, for the people who went home beating their breasts, they stood there, they watched Jesus die, and they would walk away going, this is the worst day ever. What happened? He was supposed to be our king. He's the Messiah. What happened here? But what we later see is the early church looks back on this day and doesn't see it as the worst day ever. In fact, they see it as something where, as Jesus said himself, from now on, everything is different now. Everything has been changed forever because of this day. And as a result, 2,000 years later, what we'll do is we'll put crosses up in our house so that when people come over, they'll say, oh, Jesus people are here. Isn't that crazy? The brutal emblem of shame and of humiliation and torture and brutality we will put up and we'll go oh look at Jesus people are here we do that because in Jesus's death the thing that you and I can never overcome which is death which is our own mortality the cross tells us death has been overcome that when Jesus is resurrected from the grave, we all look at the resurrection and we go, yeah, but the early church would look at Jesus's death and go, yes, because it didn't happen on the resurrection. It happened when Jesus died. Because when Jesus died, the Bible tells us in Peter that Jesus went down to hell and he preached to the spirits down there. Do you know what he preached to them? He didn't preach forgiveness. He didn't preach salvation to them. What he said is he said, you are defeated. You will never win. I have overcome. And from that day on, sin and death has been defeated. And you and I now get to come to the throne room of God free. And we talk about how the cross has forgiven us of all of our sins. That now when God looks at us, he regards us sinless, which is true. But I think it's so much more than that. And when we look at the cross and all we say is that now we're forgiven of all of our sins, I think we're in fear of diminishing the power of the cross. And man, 
What a bummer for a 27-year-old to study to have to present the cross. Because the way that I described it is it's like if you climb up on a rock to jump into a river, you'll often take a smaller rock with you. And you'll throw it because you'll want to see how deep it is. When you're studying the cross, it's like you throw a boulder into a giant cavern and you just wait. And it never hits the bottom. Because as you're studying the cross, you're just like, well, that's good. Oh, and that's amazing. Oh, and that's fantastic. But what I think the narrative shows us and what I think the gospel of Luke has pointed out to me is that over and over and over again, Jesus shows himself as he's obedient to the Father in all the ways that I couldn't be. And when I stand before God, he doesn't just see a creditor who's now been forgiven his debt or a debtor who's been forgiven his debt and he's a benevolent creditor. Instead, when God looks at me, he sees me as being in Christ, meaning God, that Jesus has awarded me all of his obedience. That when God looks at me, he doesn't see me and he goes, oh, you're debt free, welcome to heaven. Instead, God looks at me and says, well done, good and faithful servant. God looks at that man on the cross next to Jesus who was a criminal up until the day he died. And when God looks at that man, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because it's not about the amount of right or wrong that you've done. We like to gauge ourselves on, well, I'm not that bad. I haven't done that many bad things. My good things outweigh my bad things. God doesn't have a bar and he says, here's good and here's bad. I hope that you measure up. God says, perfect or imperfect. Jesus says, be perfect like your father is perfect. Well, the Bible tells us that all of us have fallen short. Our hope then is in the death of Jesus where he has paid for us and all of our imperfections fell on him on the cross. You can read Isaiah 52 and 53 where Jesus perfectly fulfilled the scripture and 1 Corinthians will tell us that Jesus died on the cross in accordance with the scripture. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the scriptures that you and I can approach God as our father. This hopeless day, this broken day ends up becoming our only hope. And now the Bible tells us in Romans 5 that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That Jesus in Hebrews says that he went to the cross despising its shame for the joy that was set before him. That joy is you and me. Jesus was not lacking anything in heaven. The joy that he, that was set before him was you and me. Now you and I can go through tribulation. We can go through distress. We can go through what Jesus experienced on the cross where all of his friends abandoned him. We can have relational tribulation. We can have physical pain. We can go through debt. We can go through life, all hard things, knowing there's always joy around the corner and I see it in Jesus. And if God is so good that he would give his only son for me, I know he will also give me all good things and he's not going to abandon me. Our God is faithful. So Jesus, we're so thankful for the cross. We're so thankful that your death has set us free. Your death has conquered death. And Lord, if death is our victory, what things in life should we fear? There's nothing left for us to fear if death is our victory. So Jesus, let us go every day knowing that you are victorious, you are faithful, you are good, and you have overcome. And God, if you've given us Jesus, you are God to be trusted in. And we know that you love us because Christ died for us while we were still sinners. We weren't perfect. We were at our worst. So Jesus, we thank you and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.